inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. The following is part one of a Zoom conversation initially recorded on June 24th, 2021. A chat between my co-host Carrie and author Dr. M. Leona Godin on her book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. It wasn't originally meant for airing, but instead as reference for an interview for literary journal The Rumpus. I was in charge of making sure the whole thing was recorded, so Carrie could have her notes for writing up said interview. But it was only afterward that I commented on how I thought the natural casual style between the two of them would make an interesting conversation for others to be able to hear. Recording in progress. You speak of hitting your desk um, in, at one point in your book as a writer um, every morning. Yeah. And um, so... What exactly, what are you attempting to uh, show by this uh, piece of detail from your routine when, it, when mm. you put it in your book? Right. So I believe that that comes at a moment that I'm um, trying to address a disability as a, as a social construction and as an, a construction of kind of uh, access to accessibility or technology. So. I was attempting to show that because I have an accessible computer that I use text-to-speech output most of the time, sometimes my braille display, but I'm slow, um, that I am able to approach my work as an individual writer. That is to say, I don't need any help uh, to, to write. You know, I don't need an amanuensis as you know, John Milton did back in the 17th century. Um, and I wanted to give a very concrete example of how my relationship to my work as a writer is basically unaffected in, I would say, 95% of what I do as a writer um, is not affected by my by my blindness. So that's to say that I take the subject of blindness in my book, but in terms of process as a writer, I, I, I don't feel like my, my blindness affects my writing. Now I'm, I'm leaving 5% there because there's probably some differences in terms of having a relationship to writing that is majority audio. So 5% I would leave for, um, well, the occasional inaccessible website, um, uh, where then I'll call in the call in the brigade, you know, call in my sighted partner to you know attack a, a website. Usually, that tends to be with more uh, kind of sausage making, like contracts and things like that. You know, so mm -hmm. so less about um, writing process and more about sometimes having to to access sites that aren't accessible. But for the most part, you know, getting getting and reading books, um, all of that is, I, I find 
pretty much totally accessible. And so it doesn't affect me as a writer. Um, and then the other little bit that I would say would be different is, is possibly because I'm doing everything by ear um, or most things by ear. The way that my text gets read back to me um, when I'm editing is maybe affects my writing. Um, it's hard. I don't think in a bad way or a good way. It just, it means that I'm always kind of listening to sentence flow. And I think it affects how I, um, how I edit, you know, my writing or, or how I um, approach the edits, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. No, I really, I just liked that. One of the things that you add in about yourself as far as autobiographical and, um, your own little anecdotes. I thought that was a really nice touch when you say that just to set the scene for people for what it's like on a daily basis, which is a lot of times what a, people wonder is like, well, what, how do you do this every day and how do you do that? So, right. Well, it's interesting. Um, it, one of the people in my book is Alice Eeks or Lori Alice Eeks, but she goes by Alice. Um, and she is a professional genre writer. So she writes romance uh, novels. She's written published traditionally published you know 35 novels and um you know she goes to conferences all the time and has had a lot of success in that in that area and one of the things that she gets asked the most is how do you write <laughs> and mm. and so she has like a snarky answer which is very well thank you you know <laughs> mm. um but I think I think you're right that that like we might as well get that out of the way that you know in terms of I, I, maybe I should even say even more specifically I write typing in and audio out so traditional QWERTY QWERTY keyboard um, in because a lot of people think oh well if it's text to speech then you're dictating right um, yeah but that's not the case so I'm typing in and and audio out. Yeah, a lot of people normally think of like that, what's it called? Dragon something, dragon yeah, software. Yeah, dragon naturally speaking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What sorts of things got you thinking about the culture side of blindness in the first place? Ooh, um, well, that goes back a long way. Um, some of these ideas are as old as, um, I would say, undergrad, um, maybe my first classes in the classics. So my first introduction to Homer on the one hand, and then also I think kind of third year of college, I took my first Milton class pretty much at the same time. So I was a classics major in early, what was called at UC Santa Cruz, a pre and early modern literature uh, student. And um, so kind of two things happened at the same time where I met Milton, uh, read Paradise Lost and learned about his blindness. Um, and then also I was uh, studying Greek and Latin and uh, I used a, a tutor that was provided by Disabled Student Services um, in order to get a little extra help because a lot of what you do as a classics major is that you you basically read and translate in class, um, which was really hard for me. So don't ask me why I was a classics major. It's just kind of a mystery to me why I mm. struggled through that. But, um, but I, so I had a tutor and at one point he said, you know, he, he obviously knew that I was visually impaired, but he said, did you know that the, the ancient Greeks revered the blind as poets and prophets? And 
it was one of those moments where, um, of course, I knew, I knew that there was the idea of, of Homer being blind, although we don't know that he actually existed. Um, we have this idea that has been a very tenacious idea in our Western culture about um, Homer's blindness. And I think what was striking about him saying that to me was because he was, it was like he was offering it to me as a gift. You know, it was like, he knew that I was visually impaired. He knew that I was struggling. And it was like he was making a connection between that reverence and, you know, kind of the the the, the struggles of, you know, dealing with uh, Greek and Latin texts that are in like inch high characters, you know, that are just uh, mm-hmm. I, at that time I was reading large print and really struggling with it and stuff. So um, for me, that, that idea of the the cultural representation of blindness being somehow related to and yet not at all related to the experience of being an actual blind person has has been interesting to me for gosh you know that's just to show my age you know close to close to 30 years now and then as a as a grad student i really explored some of those ideas more uh, that is to say um juxtaposing the actuality of the blind experience against the metaphors of blindness. Yeah. And I mean, I'd love literature always, but yeah, the idea of uh, being studying the classics, like your book, um, like I said, it's very conversational parts and, and, and very um, autobiographical parts and very funny parts. And, and so a lot of the first chapters specifically um, are very um, classics, heavy, like, Homer and and Milton and things that a lot of people don't get far enough into that sort of subject to get into really or ever right. read. Um, and I've sort of just uh, read a bit of it and things over the years, but um, yeah, I mean, you definitely obviously start thousands of years ago with someone like Homer who you can't even be sure he existed or that he was blind or whatever, all yeah. the way up till um, your, your specialty, like you say, is the um, 17th, 18th century, right? Yeah. 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 So I definitely kind of, spend a little more time in there. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Like what was blindness like in that, at that time in, in our, in our history? Right. Well, I am n- not an expert in, and that's the thing. I mean, in the ancient world, I don't think we have a very good sense of it. I mean, mm-hmm. our idea of blindness comes to us from these literary texts really, you know, so it's, it's almost like th- the blind experience is not accessible to us because um, because we, we we have you know only these literary texts to, to look towards. I think there have been some interesting studies that have have kind of gone deeper into that kind of archaeological, more anthropological look of blindness. And really, I'm not not to dismiss, dismiss your question at all, but but mm-hmm. I am more interested in um, perceptions of blindness that are ancient and that are still with us today, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I bring in so much of my own experience and the experience of other blind people uh, who have written memoirs in recent years is because I really wanted um, to show that I'm not just interested in Homer um, as a figure who, you know, is 3,000 years old, but as a, a trope that's so so a part of our culture today. Um, now, now that being said, you know, 
from what we can tell within, say, for example, the Odyssey, um, there, there may have been such a thing as a blind bard. And I think what's interesting to say about that is that um, at the time that the um, the stories that were eventually written down as the Iliad and the Odyssey, they came out of an oral tradition. And so the the potentiality of a blind bard was certainly there, right? Because a, 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 at that time, it was literature was was an oral experience and and very often a musical experience so the the blind bard who we meet in the odyssey is named demodocus and there's a lot of speculation about the the fact that that character within the story is kind of the 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 meta um kind of version of what we think of as being Homer. But, you know, again, we don't know anything about Homer. But so it's interesting to to think about the fact that once the poem was written down, that would be a culture that the blind of those days would no longer be able to thrive in, right? They they wouldn't have been a part of the culture that actually finally wrote down that oral tradition and, and put it into a coherent text that we read today, you know? Right. So that's one thing I think that's really interesting, right, is that we have the idea of the blind bard, but the blind bard comes to us from a tradition that we are separated from, you know, 3,000 years ago in in most cultures, in, or I should say in our Western culture, that we're separated from because, you know, since the, you know, the 8th century, when, when around the 8th century, 7th century uh, BC, BCE, that the Iliad and the Odyssey were finally written down until our own day, or at least until, you know, the late 18th century, um, that a, a blind bard would have been a very different and, and difficult experience. You, you would have needed to rely on others, you know, an amanuensis probably up until the 18th century when uh, you finally have Valentine Aoi come along um, and open up, you know, the first school for the blind. Now, there are some exceptions, right? There were always exceptions of people that were uh, born blind and lucky enough to be in an aristocratic uh, world that they were able to get kind of specialized, personalized training. So there yeah. were, you know, the the standout individuals. Um, for example, of course, Milton's a good example, but he was not born blind, right? So he right. had his whole life, you know, up until he was 42 to have this extraordinary training, um, you know, this extraordinary uh, breadth of knowledge. Um, it's basically impossible to think of him have being able to have written Paradise Lost after he was blind if he hadn't had that kind of an education behind him with sight. And then there were a couple other standouts, uh, but again, they had kind of, um, like there was Nicholas Saunderson, he he was born blind or I think lost his sight very, very young, but had, you know, specialized training, uh, you know, worked to kind of uh, learn um, by feel um, and uh, and there were some other exceptions, like Maria Theresia von Paradis, uh, Austrian woman. She right. too kind of had these, you know, this training. People made making her block letters and contraptions and teaching her music. And but they were exceptions until Valentine Howie came along and said, "Hey, you know, in this Enlightenment realm of things, um, I think that all people should be educated, including blind people." And so he really began to 
create embossed books and have a school for the blind and and make it possible for for the average Joe blind person and not just the rich blind people to to have an education. And then of course he opens up his school and you know within a couple of decades Louis Braille comes along and um you know, mm-hmm. invents Braille. And and again, so you have the idea of literacy for blind people generally, which then opens up the possibility of actually being a blind writer again, you know, mm. and, and brings back the idea of the, even the possibility of a blind bard, I guess. Yeah, because I always found with like anthropology that it's like, like to try and even imagine the time of Homer, my brain can't even, it's like dinosaurs almost. It's like too far back for my brain to, <laughs> and I yeah. think that's a lot of people. Um, so the way you, you bridge that gap from but all those thousands of years ago to, you know, like you say, um, Louis Braille's day and all the way up till now is just, it's beautifully done. But um, I think for most people, the, it comes into a, a question is like, okay, so mo- more modern times is like, okay, when was, when, when did the, um, when did, you know, schools for the blind come along? Like you write in your book, when did Braille, when was Braille, like before Braille was invented, you know, blind people couldn't read or write very easily, stuff like that. And then when did the, like, when did blind people start using white canes and all this stuff, like yeah. white people don't always know what year those, when those things happened and, and what that timeline is. So you do great with that for people yeah. to understand that better. But um, blindness, um, especially as it has um, gone for the hundreds of thousands of years, as I was saying, um, this is no small thing to bring that together. As I said, um, how do you even um, go about starting to tackle such a mega thing in book form? Yeah. So this has come out of, a lot of different kinds of approaches. Um, you know, as an academic, my dissertation was about um, technologies of sight in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, so both kind of philosophical approaches as well as literary approaches, um, mostly in England, but also in France. Um, that, and then sort of after grad school, I made a severe left turn and started exploring similar ideas that had motivated me. Again, the the metaphors being um, juxtaposed with the kind of more realities of blindness, but I took it to, you know, to Helen Keller being in vaudeville and created a one woman show. And, um, and then I really got interested in the history of Braille and wrote a play about that and have written kind of some short stories about that and stuff. So um, there in terms of kind of style and putting this whole thing together, there were a lot of versions of this book. Um, I, when I first started working with my agent, it, it, we kind of went through like a Goldilocks kind of a thing where like mm-hmm. the first proposal I wrote was, you know, too much about me. And then the second proposal was too, not enough about me. And then the third one was just right, you know? So there was always, because I knew that I wanted to write a cultural memoir, you know, mm-hmm. that was, it was very like, a, or a, a cultural history with some personal anecdotes or something, you know, I, I knew I didn't want to write like a straightforward memoir, but saying that is one thing and actually doing it is another. So there was an early version of this book. Once it did get sold, um, and then there was an early version of this book that didn't know which timeline to follow. That is to say, I wasn't, I still wasn't sure if I should follow my own timeline and bring in the cultural stuff or if I should follow the timeline of, 
you know, the, the, the Homer to present day kind of timeline, the, the cultural history timeline. Um, and so the, the first version of the book was kind of a mess, I must, ad- I must admit, you know, and um, we've got to love our editors and uh, yeah. uh, really I had to, I had to make a choice and, and it was almost a no brainer in some ways is that I, I knew that I wanted to follow the cultural history. It was just that I kept getting sucked back into maybe trying to do both, you know? Um, but finally, once I had that full book version, which was quite a bit longer as well, um, that messy version, uh, talked to my editor and re- made a firm decision that I was going to follow the trajectory of the history and just bring in my voice as, as anecdotes, as, um, kind of the, the way to show that, um, these ideas, no matter how old are very much alive today. But yeah, no, that's, it's great. Um, because like, you know, they say, you know, well, you want to have a, a book, this is the kind of book you want it. Well, don't wait for others to write it, write it yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just want to quickly insert in here, um, in between the questions is that I, the reason why I'm so gung ho about this book, not the fact that I know you and, um, I respect what you, your work and, and things, but it's like, as someone who's been blind all my life, low vision now, almost totally blind. Um, I've been waiting for this kind of book all my life and it just wasn't mm-hmm. in my wheelhouse to write. Like it just, I, and I, I know what you mean about the memoir and then the cultural like, and the way you, yeah, bring it all together and you illustrate things with such skill. Like, that's just, oh, I wasn't man. able to just wait around for myself to be able to write it. I, I, <laughs> so I appreciate that someone, you came along and did that because it's so much oh, work. And, um, okay, so. 20 years uh, in the making. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's what I want to show that, you know, like this, you didn't just get this idea four or five years ago, necessarily. No. No, no, no. It, it, yeah, and and I mean that's that's it. I guess that's why I started with the idea that a lot a lot of the the ideas that are in the book have been things that I've been exploring for a very long time in in very different kinds of capacities and stuff. And so, I think it was important for me to bring all of those kind of disparate examinations together because I felt that that would be in a book form that that would be the most. Um, kind of compelling argument about how mm-hmm. ingrained some of these cultural ideas are. And, and really, oftentimes, even if they are positive images, how detrimental they can be to us as living, breathing blind people in the world today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I always want to point out every day on social media when, you know, I get a, something comes up, but it's like, it's hard to do it here and there, little chunks yeah. to get people to understand. Yeah, that, that I'm yeah. not just that I'm not just being overdramatic, or you know that it's not as bad as it used to be, or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's not, you know, that we're all beggars anymore, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's not room to grow, right? I mean, yeah, I think that's a really yeah. good point. You know, that that progress is something that I think sometimes we like to think is like we are the modern era, right? And we are yeah. the postmodern era, and so like we're done with progress, as if it's something that like stops and you know humans don't continue to learn and grow, and that we're not going to be, you know, the ancients to a culture. You know, if we don't destroy ourselves, that we're not going to be the, the, you know, the the ancients that are being looked back upon and mm-hmm. analyzed as as needing to progress beyond where we are. Okay, I wanted to focus on the book title for a, a minute. Um, yes. Uh, 
I know I've heard a few of your um, book tour events and people do ask. And I, I admit yeah. that I I had that question from the first time I heard that what the title was going to be. Yeah. Uh, when I hear their plant eyes, I think they're like EIR first. Ah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you got to read it. That's why, you know, Braille is important. If you just listen audibly, you might not. Yes, that is very true. Think to look at that. So, um, yeah. So uh, forgive me if these, if this kind of questioning around the title is, is, is sort of simple or ignorant about it. If it's, um, so no. how did you, how did you found, find a balance in the book between the words in your title? Um, so in, in the title between the personal and the cultural parts of the title, like, is that mm. title very um, cultural and very literary or is it, does it have something of you in it or, or what made, like, did you choose it or did the publisher So the title has got, I went through a lot of um, different titles. I actually sold the book um, as seeing and not seeing a personal and cultural history of blindness. Um, I originally had a title that was, uh, it was from Homer to me. And uh, my agent very quickly was like, that's a bit grandiose. And I was like, yeah, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with grandiose? But, so that was very quickly dismissed. Um, when Once we were in moving towards the final stages of, um, of the edits, you know, they sort of said the seeing and not seeing is just not selling enough, which was the jargon. And um, uh, I... I don't know. I don't know how it happened, but it was it was one of those moments where I I think I was I was thinking that the best kind of title actually comes from an important text. Uh, you know, there are so many amazing texts that I draw upon in this in this book, and I, it yeah. seemed like well, I might as well take something from a classic, right? And so I don't even know how it happened, but at some point, I guess I was reading through Paradise Lost because it seemed like that might be a good place to mine for a good, you know, nice poetic phrase or something. Mm-hmm. And there there it was, their plant eyes, and it's in the middle of this beautiful passage in, in Paradise Lost, um, a very famous passage in book three where uh, the narrator comes to the, to the foreground. So, um, you know, in, in paradise lost, we begin in hell actually. And, and then he he made the, the narrate, the narrative voice who we often conflate with Milton. And I think not, not wrongly, but, you know, as a literature major, you kind of have to think, well, it's still a poetic version of Milton, right? So so yeah. the, the speaker um, leaves hell to enter heaven and kind of waxes poetic for many lines about how even if he's kind of poetically leaving darkness he's he's not actually entering the light in any kind of physical way but he is entering uh, he, he's um kind of talking about how he's going to rely on his inner eye his his mental eye or his poetic eye to um to continue to write this this poem um so there it is and and it and it's funny because then once i said i said to my partner to alabaster i said how about their plant eyes and right away i mean i i don't know how many other things i had kind of thrown yeah. out as we were going about our days you know it's like a band name or something you know yeah like, like uh no that is really terrible let's just not put that on the list kind of thing you know but as soon as i said their plant eyes he said 
whoa, yes. And then we kind of worked to get the publisher to be on it. And it's interesting because it is so grammatically strange and it's not immediately apparent what it means. Um, they wanted to, like they liked it, but then some, they were so confused by it that they wanted to stick a comma after the there. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, at first I had a knee jerk reaction was, which was like, that's not very punk rock, you know? And then I kind of sat back and I thought about it and I wrote this long letter to them. And I, I, you know, I said, well, mo- the the gist of it was like, let's not change Milton, shall we? Like he's done really well yeah. for himself and the Miltonists would, you know, not be happy if I was to just, just stick a comma there where he does not have one. So that was kind of the prevailing argument. And, and thank goodness we won because um, even if people would have felt more comfortable with it, I would have been pretty embarrassed. And, you know, my professors of old would have been very saddened. <laughs> so, uh, and it's just really cool because it's so metaphoric that it, it, it does take people. I remember when I was recording the audiobook, and, um, you know, right in the middle, uh, the director said, well, what does it mean? Like, what does their plant eyes mean? And I said, well, it's almost implicitly um, suggesting a gesture, right? It's almost like like there's an invisible finger that is saying, that is pointing to the to the heart or to the gut or to the mind, maybe to the head even, and saying their plant eyes, right? They're not pointing at your eye sockets, right? I mean, that is really what Milton is doing. He's trying to point people away from the outer vision and towards the inner vision. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's always necessary for everybody to like to have a title that people, everybody can look, cause you can't, you know, make that absolute for everybody so that sometimes a title can be very obscure, but that's kind of good for a title I think it's like yeah and it's evocative right because yeah, it's obscure evocative. yeah it's obscure but all the words are quite plain right I mean there's like three you know yeah. one syllable words I think like I think that's why I like it and that's why I say it's a little bit punk rock because it it has a feel to it yeah. that kind of extends I think beyond the meaning that that is a little obscure for sure mm-hmm. Outlook. Radio Western, continuing Carrie's interview with Dr. Godan. What do you say in this book on the metaphorical weightiness of blindness? I remember you saying that, using that term, weightiness. So, yeah. I mean, is it, is it metaphorical mostly or like, I mean, it's both, but whatever you want to say on weightiness, of the whole weightiness thing. Yeah, well, I guess the, the, the metaphorical weightiness is something that I'm kind of um, trying to unravel or um, complicate with the um maybe the the complexities of the blind experience i i i I think that that's what i'm getting at when i talk about sort of metaphorical weightiness that it's almost like it weighs upon us as blind people as as kind of walking breathing humans with you know complex lives um that those metaphors because they're so strong they're so ingrained in western culture things like the blind poet prophet um you know that they that they're so um they weigh so heavy on our cultural consciousness that that i wanted to constantly 
make them bump up against the realities of blindness as experienced by myself. But also that's why I bring in so many blind memoirs, right? To to kind of show how diverse and how how um yeah messy and and complex and interesting and dynamic are the, the lives of blind people that kind of get flattened into these ingrained metaphors. And that we as blind people are kind of constantly forced to um uh negotiate right it, on the one hand the kind of poet prophet now the superhero right it, kind of the mm. the super blind on the on the one hand and then the pitiable specimen um kind of beggar on the on the other side that the so this wild oscillation between the metaphors and then the um the kind of the stigma and what's missing in all of this is what you probably heard me say a zillion times in all of, I don't know how many how many interviews you've heard thus far, but um, mm-hmm. you know, that 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 vast in between that we all live in that are just we're sort of just normal blind people, right? That's kind of what's missing. And and yeah. so that weightiness of the metaphors is something that I think we're all kind of fighting in our own way. Yeah, and I think that's like what I say all these years. I've been waiting for this book is that's, I've, I've been feeling that my whole life. And so it's just nice that it's acknowledged and that it's out there for the wider yeah. world to, to understand, um, yeah. said better than I ever really could. Um, I so this, about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> in little bursts, I can do it. Um, so I, I'm building up to it. Um, yeah, I love your perspective with all the people that you bring into it and all the perspectives. It's it, so many people I've heard of, so many people I haven't. It's great. Um, but you write about having several blind spirit guides throughout this book. Yeah, right. How did that inform the writing journey for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, let's see. So I kind of took the spirit guides as people that have um, that I was able to draw upon as uh, fr- from their own voice. So that is, have a strong memoir uh, voice that I could also used it to help me dismantle the, that weightiness of uh, that metaphorical weightiness of blindness. So the first one is definitely Helen Keller. Um, she was probably one of the first, you know, blind memoirs that I, I read and really started me on my path of, of kind of the modern blind experience. Like I said, when I was in, in graduate school, I kind of ran across this book called the radical lives of helen keller and um which is about her her politics you know completely wonderful leftist politics um but then there was this moment where it mentioned that she had performed in vaudeville for four years from 1920 to 24 and i just decided that i wanted to explore that as a performer um Mm -hmm. so did the research but then you know wanted to explore it as a performer but in doing that of course i read all of her autobiographical writings and because I think most people only read story of my life which of course ends basically when she's you know I mean she wrote it when she was like 22 or something you know barely out of barely out of college um so you know the idea sort of the the idea of closing the book on your life you know when you're 20 but really the story kind of ends with her gaining language, right? Which is the story Mm -hmm. we all know through the miracle worker and stuff. So I wanted to use her voice to help me um, say things about these, these metaphors. And once I decided to use her, there was also um, 
like John Hull is another uh, person that I read early on many years ago, uh, his book called Touching the Rock. Um, uh, and I just kind of thought that I could use these, these voices to continue to help me unravel. Because I think too often the, the problem with memoirs, like I love memoirs, I, I love reading them. But mm -hmm. the problem with them is that um, th they kind of make the blind person into an isolated um, an isolated case. And I think for a lot of sighted people, if they read a blind memoir, that's, that's one, that's wonderful, but they're probably not going to read more than one. And yeah. there's a feeling that, you know, just kind of that isolated case of say a Stevie Wonder or a Helen Keller, like it feels, that's where you have the problem of inspiration porn, right? Because it feels like this is just one story that manages to be like up, kind of lifted above the the muck of blindness generally, which is a yeah. otherwise deplorable state, you know? And so that was why I really wanted to bring in these voices, um, some of whom are more famous than others, um, but all of whom had very interesting stories to tell that could show that, you know, this is not just one inspirational story, but these are actual opinions and perspectives that help us to understand you know, the, the metaphorical, uh, and well, really the cultural significance, I guess, of blindness and then, uh, kind of show it by doing right. That, 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 because I could have these real life voices, these real people arguing in their own ways against, um, the kind of collapse into metaphor, into, um, stigma, you know, on the other hand. Mm -hmm. well, I just love that term, your, you know, spiritual guides, that yeah. that makes it seem like quite the journey that you went on with this. And from reading, you can tell you have, but it's just, it's nice to hear that that was what stuck out for you, that you had that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think when you read a lot of memoirs by people mm -hmm. that have, you know, certainly by no means the same experience, but have some, some similarities or, you know, one glaring similarity being some kind of lack of sight. Um, it just, it it helps to situate yourself in a larger conversation, which is what I really wanted to do in this book, you know, is kind of, yeah, situate my voice into a, a tapestry, I guess. Right. Tapestry. Yeah. Especially like when you talk about sighted people and how, how blindness isn't just literal for us who are actually blind, but that blindness is used to describe lots of states that sighted people have, have been in themselves over the years, I guess. Um, so how mm -hmm. do you kind of distinguish be um, between the literal and the figurative blindness in the book? It's so hard, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. And um, I like that you actually first point out about sighted people, because I think even just saying sighted people might be a little surprising to sighted people, right? Because I think yeah. there's the sense that, you know, sighted people are just people, right? And, and that, then we need to qualify for blindness. So I, I remember actually a good friend of mine said, you know, one time she she used the word sighted people, or the term sighted people. And some, you know, one of the people that she was talking to and in another fellow psychologist, sorry, I'm not saying this well, was like, whoa, sighted people. Like how, how interesting, you know, like how interesting, how striking. And, and I guess that's why I kind of use that a lot in, in, in the book to, to kind of make it clear that, you know, you can be a normal 
person, right? And and be blind, just like you can be a normal person and be sighted, you know, whatever normal, whatever your version of normal is, you know. But um, so I I think this gets back to your whole thing about the metaphorical weightiness of blindness, that in our culture, blindness means so many things and it's so intimately connected with with understanding and with knowledge and with consciousness and and self-awareness right mm-hmm. all of these things that we like to think of ourselves as being as humans right um is contradicted by by blindness in a in a rhetorical sense all the time right i mean we we, we basically um you know i mean blind faith to blind ed, ed, um, evolution to blind love, right? I mean, these these terms mean that you're kind of unthinking in a general sense, right? It's kind of yeah. unthinking, uh, unconsciousness, and and that's fine, right? I mean, metaphorical uses of the word is is okay, right? I, I don't want to like strip the the meaning of of that completely, but I do want to trouble it because. The problem is that those constructions are created by sighted people for the most part. You know, through through the years, um, those m- metaphors, those rhetorical uses are created by people who are not blind. And so blindness means something to them that it doesn't mean to us, I think, yeah. for the most part. And so that's where things get problematic is because we haven't been the creators of our stories, of our histories, of, of science, you know, of of almost anything, you know, we've been barred from for so long that these metaphors have been able to kind of run rampant in our culture to such an extent that I think even blind, a lot of blind people are like, who cares? This is just language. Like, it doesn't matter, right? I saw you got into a big debate about this on (laughs) Facebook and it's like, well, wow. Well, if language doesn't matter, then why do we why do we write books? Like, why do we talk? You know, (laughs) if the words we use don't matter, then my God, then let's just all shut up, you know? Um, I, I don't know. It just, it yeah. seems, it's so, it seems really, um, uh, I mean, dare I say a little bit, I, I mean, I think it's flip, you know, a, a, and a bit of ignorance and a bit of like, I think, I think it speaks to arrogance, you know, I think it speaks to kind of ableist arrogance, right? A feeling that, oh, well, if you're, you know, if, you feel like you're a progressive person, right? And so the idea that they might be doing something that's harmful um, strikes them as kind of odious, right? No, no, I, I, I'm a good person. I, I would like help yeah. a blind person across the street or whatever, but I want to be able to use my language the way I want to use my language and I don't want to have to change. And it, it speaks also to that idea of progress that we were talking about, you know, that like, that's fine. We, we have these rich metaphors, some of them I think will just naturally start to slough away as you have more of us, right? More blind people writing journalistic articles about other blind people. Um, You know, I think that's so huge, right? Is that so oftentimes you have journalists that know nothing about blindness that are writing these really ridiculous news stories, you know, about, about blind people. And, and so they kind of like, like to, um, you know, uh, kind of over, 
below the metaphors, you know, where it's like, oh, and, you know, that's where it gets a little embarrassing, a little cheesy, you know, it's like mm-hmm. this person shows great insight, right? And then we have like all these puns of sort of sight unseen and, you know, all these all these ideas that, again, I, I feel like they've just been pretty much created by sighted people. And, and, and that the only way that I think we're really going to loosen their hold on our consciousness is if we have more power over the, the, the blind constructions. And that I think it'll just sort of naturally be a thing where people will start to realize, wow, there's a blind reader out there. You know, because I think that a lot of writers don't even think about a blind reader. You know, I, I think they, they, you know, I, I do think it's a problem to assume sightedness. That doesn't mean you should trip up on every single word like see you later or something. But yeah. it does mean when you start to write an entire book about, you know, blind evolution, what that means, you know, to, 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 the, to the blind people that have to share that, yeah. <laughs> share that adjective. You know, it's, it's a very powerful thing because, because then what, you know, again, what does matter? Another kind of, this is going so off topic, so you can stop me, but I will say that I think it it's related to, you know, people thinking that it's no big deal, like that there's, you know, what I've had this conversation very similar to the one that you had on Facebook, but about actors and they're like, well, actors are actors, right? Yeah. So why not let, you know, um, Jamie Foxx win the Academy Award for for playing blind, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and then you have to say, well, what are if you're what if you're a blind actor? And like the idea of even being a blind actor is something that doesn't compute, I think, for a lot of people, you know. And nope. and so we have to fight so hard, you know, to say, hey, it's not just about them playing blind people. It's like, what about having a blind actor? What about having a, a a blind director, a blind screenwriter, you know, all these things that are so ingrained that, that make our culture today are just can almost completely out of our control. And, and it just perpetuates all these, these stereotypes and rhetorical uses and metaphors that we just really need to step back from a little bit to like recalibrate, you know, Sorry to yeah, well, go on my soapbox. No, but. that's <laughs> and these are good points that you bring up that maybe um, play into questions I have further down the line, and sometimes then then it helps me circle back. So yeah, but basically the line that about blindness forces sighted the sighted to see what's what, and mm. I just wondered about reaction so far or what maybe well it hasn't come yet about if sighted people really believe that they are like, if they saw that this is a book about blindness, if they were, would be surprised that they're featured so prominently in it, that, that, Mm. that that you're bringing them into it so much. Like it's like, like you said, again, it's like, well, what did I I would help blind people do with any, if they needed help? Why are you bringing sighted people into this so much or something? Oh my God. That is such, that speaks to something so important, right? It's like, I think sometimes, um, Gosh, I want to say so many things, but I think you heard the interview yesterday with Jason Roberts, and yeah. I think he he gave me the the tagline that I think I'm going to use like a lot, which is "This is a self help book for sighted people," which I thought was just kind of brilliant <laughs> because I think it's true. I think that you know people will say, "Oh, this is a book about blindness. I should get this for my blind friend or whatever," and it's like not that I care more about the sighted reader, you know, I think that Mm -hmm. that's a a dangerous thing, right? A lot of that comes up in a lot of um, kind of disability writings, you know, that, that, you know, it's not that I want to be a part of the sighted world. I want to ingratiate myself or, 
or I mean, granted, there are probably a few more sighted readers. So, you know, I would like some yeah. sighted readers, but really at the end, at, at the end of it all, I do think that sighted people's perceptions need to shift as well, right? I mean, we adapt, we 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 are learning how to use our technology, we are learning how to use our tools and all of that stuff. But until I think this goes for non-disabled people generally, you know, uh, until they start to realize that um, that we have voices that can actually help society in general um, and kind of step aside a little bit in the um, kind of the, the need to help uh, as opposed to listen, you know, um, it's going to be a tough, it's going to continue to be a tough road to hoe or whatever that expression is, right? I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be hard until um, the non-disabled people of the world realize that they also need to like shift their thinking and change their perceptions and allow for, you know, allow for um, say lack of sense, a lack of one sense to be just a different state of being as opposed to a lesser state of being, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so it is important for me to say, hello, sighted reader. I, I see you, <laughs> yeah. right? I see you out there. And, and I do try and say, you know, I, I think it, I think it's clear, right. That there's going to be a lot of things that, that blind people, I think will chuckle at and sighted people will kind of bristle at, you know, at almost yeah. the same moments. Um, and so I think it is hopefully in both empowering to blind people and, um, you know, hopefully not a scolding mm -hmm. to, to sighted people, but, but a wake up call, you know, that, that yeah. they've been thinking about blindness almost a hundred percent wrong their, <laughs> their whole lives, you know, in, in both their real lives and, and in their kind of cultural ideologies and stuff. Yeah. And I guess I, for me, it's like, um, I didn't feel at all that I'm being as a blind person pushed aside as audience for the sighted. I feel like this book speaks to me in so many ways that it won't speak to sighted people, but that it, that it would speak to them too in other ways. So yeah, I don't feel yeah. at all like I'm neglected and, and you're just trying to fit in with the sighted people. By writing <laughs> this book. Um, but I, I do wonder about what kind of, because this touches a nerve for both blind and sighted readers. Like, just because we're mm. blind doesn't mean we all agree that that this stuff needs to be talked about. Sometimes it's of course it is so weighty and heavy that a lot of blind people don't feel that they can take it on. It's it's too much to yeah. And I want there to be, and, and that's the thing. It's like even my dear friend um, Jim Knipfel, who features in the book, and um, mm -hmm. you know is one of the early readers and stuff, and you know, and then read it. Or read parts of it, you know, early on, and then read the whole book recently, and and you know had wonderful things to say about it. And he was like, you know, but of course I disagree with you on some points, right? You know? And it's like, well, yes, I should hope so, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, my goodness, if we can't disagree with each other, you know, where are we? Then we're, we're you know, I mean, that's what a community is about. You know, where there's yeah. going to be differences and similarities and stuff. But that doesn't mean we can't kind of, you know, bond together and, and help each other. And I think, like, even in the last chapter, I, I quote um, Ryan Knighton, and I, 
I kind of explain how he actually takes that position, right? Of like, I don't care about language. I'm not yeah. going to get upset about, you know, see you later and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I'm not doing it to like, you know, be a bitch, you know, I'm not yeah. trying to say like, he's wrong. I'm just trying to say like, we do have different opinions and we have the right to have different opinions. And that is true within, I think, probably every minority community, right? That you, I think we we have been so put upon for so long that we feel like we need to, that the only way to have power is to have like complete solidarity, you know, not yeah. just like helping each other out, but actually stomping out disparate opinions and stuff. I think, I think it's dangerous, you know, and I, and, and I certainly, I mean, I hope that in bringing in all these different blind voices, you know, I sometimes call it a cacophony of blind voices. Mm-hmm. I hope I show that like, that difference is as important as the community that I want to build. You know, the blind culture that I want to build is not a monolith. It's, it's, it's diverse and dynamic. Yeah. I was just going to say like, when you talk about all that and the blind, the sighted people's um, being brought into the book versus blind people and our thoughts on all, all that you say, I just right. it made me think of the line, like when you say that blind, that sighted people need to kind of step aside for a while and let us, I sort of think of it's like step aside, Step, stepping up and stepping aside or stepping aside and then stepping up. Cause we still, we also do want them to be, to take responsibility for the side that they mm. have an effect on and, and to, to read the book and, and, and consider it and, and, you know, maybe do better. Um, right. But at the same point. Yeah. So I just let that, um, but like, like you've said before, all the stuff you've written over the years, the different versions of things like your dissertation and your plays and the column in Catapult and, um, you know, to all the way to this, this criticism or this personal cultural history. Um, what were the differences, the biggest differences in writing all of these sort of dif- mm-hmm. going from all these different things when writing um, to offer up a concept like blindness, um, not being um, a subject, like you say, but a perspective. Yeah. Which I totally stole. Um, actually, from Ryan Knight. And interestingly, I, I, I didn't, oh, there's my headphones. Okay. Um, I didn't realize it. Uh, let me see who told me that first, but um, I have a funny footnote on that actually, because I think it was Andrew Leland who first said it, but then he had heard it. Have you seen vision portraits? It's a, um, a documentary created actually by a, a another blind guy. Who's a, um, who's a director. Um, Oh my gosh, no, Rodney Rodney Evans. So in this um, documentary, uh, Ryan Knighton is one of the people that's featured, and and that's where he actually says that 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 once he real, I think it's in this context of him being able to be the writer that he wanted to to be of, of saying, um, you know, once I realized that blindness is not just a subject, it's a perspective. It 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 allowed me to tell all kinds of stories because I think the problem is that um, if, if blindness is a subject, then we kind of only have one thing to talk about, which is our blindness. Right. And I think this plays into both the fact that almost always, you know, blind people are forced into writing memoirs and that, you know, when blind characters come up in books and movies, it's a plot point, right? It's it's yeah. a plot point usually for a sighted character or a sighted protagonist to kind of move along their journey. They meet the blind person, um, which you kind of alluded to before that, that you know, telling the, the sighted person what's what, right? In, in books, it's like, there's the blind prophet to 
send the protagonist on the sighted protagonist on his way. So, um, so that's the problem, right? Is that idea of blindness as plot point or as subject is extremely limiting, right? Because then it doesn't allow us to have, you know, to, to be intersectional beings, right? Where, you know, is somebody going to say to me, oh, when are you going to stop writing books with, you know, women characters? Or when when are you going to stop writing books, uh, you know, about, you know, I don't know, being a human? I don't know. <laughs> you yeah. know like, when are you, when are you going to start to I think that the the idea is like move on from from blindness, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a subject, as opposed to no, like me being a woman in the world colors my perceptions of the world just as much or as little as you know my my sight does or my lack of sight does, you know. So, mm-hmm. so I think realizing that it's perspective means that we can write about anything, and it's always going to probably to some extent. Not always. I shouldn't say always, but it's it's probably going to some extent um, influence how we write or or what we're writing to some extent, just as our gender and our ethnicity, our race does, right? Even if we're not necessarily writing about blindness, and and I think it kind of opens up the scope of us being able to write about all sorts of things and. Um, and not just kind of be stuck with the story of like, I lost my sight in a car accident or, you know, that kind of story of like the, as I think um, Jason Roberts was saying yesterday, that we're like always kind of forced to explain our blindness, you know, yeah. um, in, in a way that makes it the subject of the conversation always, <laughs> right? As opposed to having a conversation with a blind person, you got to always talk to a blind person about their blindness, you know, so. That is so funny. Got my um, Brian and I and a friend who's blind, we're all just talking about that the other day. About yeah, when, you that, get, that, when you get in the cab and they ask, well, yes. how'd you lose your sight? Like, it's yes. like whoa, I want, like, let's get yeah. some dinner and a movie first before we get that in a bit, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, how are you doing today too? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's like, I mean, it would be as impertinent as like you stepped into the cab and somebody was like, are you married? You know, it'd be yeah. that kind of question. It's like, my goodness. Well, yeah, you're right. Like, can we have a drink first? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And you're, I mean, even to the point of, I mean, I, I think they just don't even realize it, like stopping you on the street, right? And mm-hmm. and either asking your story about blindness or telling you about their blind relative, yeah. Yeah. right? I mean, it always, always, you're like, yeah. did you know that I'm trying to get somewhere too? You yeah. Know? <laughs> oh God, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, oof, don't get us started, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, we're, we're like you said, the weightiness of it. We're tasked with having to f- educate people and wanting to make yeah. them aware. But at the same point, that doesn't mean that we're open every moment of the day, wherever we might be, for them to just lo- thrust that at us. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so w- when you said the part where that you, that just because blind people, when pe- blind people read this, that, that we we're not all going to agree with everything you say all the time, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what's mm-hmm. great about this. Um, yeah. So I guess I got to admit to you that when I got to the chapter about the, um, which I'd never heard, I'd, I'd learned, I knew, I knew quite a bit about um, Louis Braille and that school, but I don't think I really knew much about the guy who started the school. And yeah. I definitely hadn't heard about the Cafe of the Blind. Okay. Uh-huh. So that, that blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and it touched a nerve for me because I am sensitive about embarrassment still, even uh, after all these years and uh-huh. what that feels like to be laughed at or whatever. And right. when you got to the part where you sort of said, well, you know, maybe, maybe these blind men 
you know, we should give them credit. They may have chose to do this. It might be, it might have been fun for them and it gave them some, right? So I, I yeah. and I'm, I'm not saying I disagree with that exactly, but yeah. I don't know if I can quite feel good to agree either. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. what's great about it. Um, but so you write about the cafe of the blind and um, the pre, pre-education uh, and the education of the blind. Um, and as an artist and a writer, um, what do you want to add to the book when you share your possible controversial view on this subject? Mm-hmm. I guess you'd want to call it controversial. I don't know. Um, but I know like yeah. uh, people know you, they know you're a performer. So right. I get where your perspective is there, but yeah. you know, like he's equal as, as equals as far as exploitation and that word exploitation. Mm. But, I guess that's really what I'm taking issue with is that when we, when we, call something exploitative, we are taking the power away from the very people that we're trying to protect, right? And even that language is just so dangerous, right? Is that, you know, I don't know what they were thinking, but I do know that it's dangerous for us to make decisions about their, um, their complicity in it. Because it starts to say that we can be certain kinds of blind people and we can't be other kinds. I mean, how many self-deprecating comedians are there out in the world, you know? And um, do I want to be up on stage, you know, with dunce caps and asses ears? Uh, No, you know. But I do think it's dangerous for us to, to use words like exploitative because, again, it happened to Helen Keller when she was on vaudeville. Yeah. And it removes... Um, uh, what is the word that I'm trying to think of? It it removes our ability to make decisions for ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess my point in that was that there weren't a lot of options for for blind people at the time, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of kind of, you know, they definitely, as far as you can tell in the literature, they were not they were not prisoners. Um, they were they were they lived in the hospice, but they were free to come and go. Um, and it's very likely that they were completely complicitous in, in the, the performance. And because I think that even people, when they use the language, it's like sort of, oh, people put dunce caps and asses ears on them and gave them broken instruments, you know, and stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, and wonder if they did it themselves, right? How does that change it? And wonder if they were having a grand time getting a bunch of free booze, getting, you know, paid for the performance and stuff like just thinking about it in those terms does that shift things for people and I I guess I just want to kind of push that idea into something that does feel distasteful I mean there's no doubt about it right I mean you know again I don't want to be that that performer but then again is there something like why haven't we had a blind comedian yet mm-hmm. you know why haven't we had that and i think it's because of that fear right of of being laughed at instead of making your audience laugh like what's yeah. the difference right and yeah being a kid and being in school and and being laughed at by your peers i mean that is a totally different thing mm-hmm. are those two things connected i think they are but i mean it is something to sit with right i mean why haven't we had a blind comedian like why why not and and again i think it, it really does it speaks to that that i think you're right fear of not being taken seriously that fear that like you know if you have the blind poet prophet on the one hand you also have the blind buffoon mm-hmm. kind of on on the other and i think we're all afraid of of that you know 
Um, yeah. Cause it's, it, it's kind of ingrained humor there as well that we've, I think we haven't had control over either. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's just, I, I can't get into all of it with the interview specifically, but all yeah. the stuff, you, all the chapters and everything you say about um, being a performance artist and all the different kinds of um, forms that has taken for you. I think it's great because sometimes I want to like, I think I should get, maybe give it a try. I haven't done like acting since I was in eighth grade. Uh, and I, I, I remember how, <laughs> how freeing it kind of felt. Yeah. And um, I would like to maybe try that again, but at the same point, I am, I'm not as, I'm not, I don't know. I need to take lessons from you on how to not take myself so seriously or to, to just let myself <sighs> let, let loose sometimes like that and not be so <laughs> needing to be in control all the time. I mean, I'm, uh, but yeah, yeah. No, that's, it's wonderful. And like you say, you keep, you keep bringing up Helen Keller and I can tell that because that, you know, the cafe of the blind is a very evocative scene, the way you write it. Yeah. Um, especially yeah. if I hadn't heard of it before. And most of us haven't, I don't believe, but, yeah. and then the Helen Keller thing, I believe I did know she did vaudeville. I don't mm. know. I don't know a lot about vaudeville at all. Um, yeah. But I, ha I'd read a few books from in my youth and in high school. I don't think I read that one, the radical one. So yours is, this is quite a, I'm, a, I'm a creating quite a, it's like when you wrote that for um, electric literature, this list of like, you, this book has so many, I've added so many other books onto my, to be read. Yay. List Good. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Cause that, yeah. I mean, really in the end, that's, that's what I, I want. Yeah. Right? And that's it's why it's such a generous thing that you do. Oh, yeah. thank you. I, I hope so. Cause I, I really like the idea of having some blind culture, you know, Yeah. like uh, blind pride, blind culture. Like wh yeah. why not? You know, it, why I not? feel like, you know, there's so much good stuff out there that, yeah, mm. so, you know, help each other out and, and celebrate ourselves in all kinds of diverse ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, so you did that, right. Um, that, that Helen Keller stint on vaudeville, you could tell you really, um, responded to that. And, um, right. what made sure. you, what meant you center the, um, Keller chapter on that part of her story? Um, yeah. how did it, how did it inform your and how does it like inform yours or um, maybe not inform is not the right word, but yeah, like why I could tell why it speaks to you so much, but just speak to that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it was a couple things. It was one, it was just kind of timing where I was already performing. Um, let's see. Uh, so I was already performing when I read that little, that little bit about her performing on vaudeville. Um, so it was, uh, I was, I was, I was ripe for it. You know, it was like, or, or how should I say it? Like I was fertile ground for that little seed to, to, to drop into, into my, my brain at that moment. And it was like, because I was knee deep in my dissertation at the moment, um, there was no way that I was going to write a book about it. In fact, I remember talking to a professor and he was like, Oh, that sounds like, you know, a great book. And I was like, are you kidding me? I, there's no way at that moment I was going to yeah. write another book. And, and, and I was performing at the time and it just seemed like, wow, this would make such great material for a one woman show. It just seemed like I could with this one period in, in a really dynamic life, right? I mean, Helen Keller had an amazingly dynamic, long life. And for one thing, right, getting her beyond the miracle worker was like number one priority, right? That she actually lives to be, you know, 87, you know, and the miracle mm -hmm. worker ends when she's seven and, you know, learns her first word or whatever. So, so first of all, moving past that and being able to explore her as a 
as a middle-aged, complicated adult, because she was like 40 to 44 when she was on vaudeville. So, mm-hmm. you know, very much a developed human being uh, with lots of ideas about the way the world should be, could be, <laughs> um, would be if she were in charge, you know, um, and, and to be able to kind of explore that in a place where from the outgo, you know, her friends were saying exploitation, you know, how could you be, you know, how could you let yourself be drawn into this like theatrical exhibition, you know, this mm-hmm. kind of language very much reminiscent of the cafe of the blind, right? The idea that because she was kind of in this, it wasn't, it was lowbrow, right? It was, it was very much lower, not totally low-class entertainment, but it was for the, it was for the masses, you know, and it was, she would be on stage with, you know, maybe a juggler, you know, would come on after her, like a horse trainer might come on before. And there were comedians and opera singers. And I mean, just everything you could possibly imagine was all on, on the vaudeville stage, including these kind of lecturish performances. Um, And so that idea of her, doing it and enjoying it and because she does talk about this in in um in midstream which is her her memoir of her middle years um mm-hmm. and uh, and she talks about it really wonderfully and it, it it her the way she describes her relationship with the other actors i mean it was just so wonderful i just i basically just took you know, a lot of what she said and just made them into monologues and they were fantastic, you know? So, I mean, I basically just, you know, stole, stole her, her, her lines about it and, and, and just thought it would be a really interesting place to examine some of these ideas of, again, the, the, the kind of, um, the dynamics of, of being blind, as opposed to just being that kind of edifice that we think of as Helen Keller, right. That feels like, so solid we we i think we all feel like we that we almost own you know when somebody is so iconic it's almost like mm. you own them and and that you're stable your idea becomes very fixed you know yeah. um because we get this image like so young right reading the story of my life in grade school for most of us seeing the miracle worker it feels just so pat and obvious and of course you dig just a little bit and you get this wonderful unraveling of a complicated and interesting life and again it's not from her perspective of the miracle worker at all no no of course not yeah i mean she's not even conscious for most of it so or barely conscious or whatever you know yeah exactly yeah yeah but i think it i think it draws a line from like i think it touches a nerve with some people to think of her in vaudeville um, because people, like you said, if there was a juggler perform, it's like going back to that um, yeah. cafe of the blind, embarrassing themselves, the circus acts being yep. exploited in the circus in the 1800s, whatever it is um, all the way. But, it, but then it leads all the way up to um, th- like through her, her, um, her circuit when she did the um, lectures all the way up to today's Broadway scene. And like Broadway is different than what vaudeville was and what Charlie Chaplin kind of thing was a hundred years ago. Yes. It's like all kinds of things happen on Broadway now, like all kinds of plays and, and shows and. Yeah. And but that by yeah. variety act, I think was yeah. very, very interesting. And it was something that it was, it was also, it touched nerve for me because that's, the scene that I was in, you know, this open mic scene that was very open to different kinds of performances. And I, I do think that things have gotten a little bit 
rarefied um, that you don't tend to have those kinds of shows that much. I mean, you know, people are always kind of trying to do vaudeville revivals and Mm -hmm. variety shows and things like that. But I, I do think that, you know, I mean, for one thing, I mean, Broadway is really expensive, right? And and yep. vaudeville was something that everybody could go to. It was it was very inexpensive. You could just walk in and sit for an hour, or you could sit for uh-huh. two hours, and um, you, you could see you could go in for fifteen minutes and watch one act. Um, you know, I think you could uh-huh. like, bring your luncheons. So it was very much for the for the the middle class, the the, the lower to the upper middle class, I would say. You know, and and that um, and family entertainment. Um, so nothing too tawdry, maybe sometimes a little Mm. titillating, but it was like turning on what used to be the TV, right? You never knew what you were going to get from hour to hour. And that's really why, you know, um, well, anyways, yeah. So maybe that's the closest example would be like network television where you could have a soap opera one minute news hour the next minute, you know, the next hour, couple sitcoms, you know, that that would probably be the closest approximation, I think. Right. Yeah. Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness by Dr. M. Leona Godin, published through Pantheon Books, is available wherever books are sold. Tune in next Monday at 11 for part two. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.